Now, here's the question. Why the law then? Why even have it? First and foremost, here's the big package question answer. <laughs> because it points towards Jesus, period. Everything points to Jesus. Okay? So let's understand the purpose of the law. The first purpose of the law. And these are all in the New Testament, scattered around places. Is this. I don't think we really truly appreciate how amazing Christianity is in a cultural, socio-relational kind of a way. The world before Christ was nasty, disgusting, and horrible. And I know we could argue that it still is, and it is. But just in a nutshell sense, you have to realize that pretty much almost everybody in the ancient world was okay with bestiality, pedophilia, child sacrifice, gang rape, domination of other people. You know the only way that you could ever have an authority of any kind of position in the ancient world is if you raped another man first. Prison rape. That's the way they thought. Plato, Aristotle, Alexander the Great, Julius Caesar, Octavian, they all had to rape another man to prove that they were man. That's how you got into power. That's how you did things. The entire world had nothing wrong. They would sack, they would abort babies and stack them up like an altar in the Roman Empire. They, they, I mean, at least in our today, Planned Parenthood has no problem aborting babies, but they still throw them on the roof because they want to hide it. But they would just stack them out in the street as an offering to gods. And the sexual, they actually believed that if the gods were sexual gods, they would actually have sex in their temples to turn the gods on so the gods would bless them more. That was worship to them. And we're talking about this, and I can go on and on, but I'm just going to stop there. Um, But why am I telling you this? Because this was universally accepted as just, this is righteousness. When you're making a church service around this kind of stuff, this isn't just like, even today, a lot of people do this kind of stuff, but they hide it. They know it's wrong. And even if they're kind of to the point where they've rationalized it all, they still kind of know it's wrong. Christianity comes in the picture, and and as much as the Catholic organization institution, I believe, became corrupted, the everyday normal Catholic people, there was some phenomenal Christians and Catholicism throughout the centuries. And they changed the world. D.A. Carson likes to say that there's two kinds of... I think it's D.A. Carson. I don't think it is. Anyways, it all begins to blur in my head after a while. Who said what? There's two kinds of, oh, it was Francis Schaeffer. If you've never read Francis Schaeffer, you need to read Francis Schaeffer. Francis Schaeffer said there was two kinds of Christians in the medieval period. There was a Christian who truly was a Christian through the blood of Jesus Christ. And there was a Christian who wasn't a Christian through salvation, blood of Jesus Christ, but they had a Christian worldview and thought like a Christian because the world was so permeated by Christianity, they couldn't help but think like a Christian, even though they had not accepted Christ as their personal Lord and Savior and were atoned. Because when Christianity came to the world, the Christians changed the world, they changed the laws, and now we live in a society where most people think pedophilia is wrong, even though they're not a Christian. It's taken a long time to get people to accept homosexuality. They think murder is wrong. They think rape is wrong. There's always some weirdo people out there, but you have to realize that they're the exception, not the norm like it was in the ancient world. There's a book called What's So Great About Christianity, and he kind of details that shift too. 
Okay? So you have to realize that you're living in the ancient world and all you know is that world. Everybody that you're with all the time is into this stuff. None of you have ever met your older brother in your entire life because the gods required that your older brother, the firstborn son, get thrown into a bowl that was heated up with a flame in the hands of Moloch and the kid was liquefied instantaneously as an infant and they would beat the drums so loud so they wouldn't hear the screams of the child as it got liquefied. That's what you're born into. Every single family did that. And you call it righteousness. How in the world are you going to know what righteousness really is? How are you even going to begin to even hope to please a God when you think that is righteousness? And when the Jews come out of Egypt, they're so thoroughly indoctrinated with Egypt, the first thing they do within 40 days is sacrifice to a golden calf. After God gave it to them. So what does God do with the law? This is what righteousness looks like. What do you do with your children when you first start reading? You start teaching them what right and wrong is. We all know our children are not born with an innate concept of righteousness. There's a little bit of it there. And C.S. Lewis does a good job of unpacking that in mere Christianity. But real righteousness. But most of their, the only, the closest thing they get to righteousness is if you punch them in the face, they'll know that's not right. But that's very basic. We hope our children go a little bit more beyond that kind of immorality. So you first reveal to them what righteousness looks like. And then why the Jews, when they got the law, said, yes, this is awesome. You go into school and your family in a Christian school and you tell them this is what the handbook says. And they're like, oh my gosh. <laughs> and that's just handbook. This is God saying everything you've done in your entire life is completely wrong. You have to change everything you do and everything you way you think and they say, Amen, this is awesome. Why? Because the gods never told you what righteousness was. They never told you how to please them. The gods were like a bunch of drunken, abusive fathers. And you walked on eggshells all the time with them because you never knew what was going to make them blow up and just smack you down and crush your life. And they never told you what they expected. And one minute it could be one thing, and the next minute it could be something else. And now you got a God coming to you saying, this, 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 and this, and this, and I will not change my mind. And for the first time ever, you don't have to walk in eggshells wondering when God's going to explode on you. Now, He will explode on you, but you know exactly why He exploded on you. And that's the first purpose of the law. you got to begin by teaching an... In- and remember... Part of the thing we need to understand with history is we're little, well, maybe we're middle school, not high school, but we're middle school in human development, humanity. When God first came to them, they were a bunch of infant children who were just mine, 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 and pushing people down, smacking them to get the toy that they wanted. And God had to teach them the rules first. The second purpose of the law good luck trying to meet that standard of righteousness. When you begin to fully understand what do not covet means, when you begin to fully understand that God is holy, therefore you be holy, and you, your life should tell the truth about God, and you should reflect perfectly the character and the image of God, and then you fail miserably. If you imagine what it's like for us to fail miserably with the Holy Spirit and the blood of Jesus Christ, imagine what they felt like without the Holy Spirit. 
And so you begin to realize that you fail over and over and over and over and over again. You have to sacrifice another animal, another animal, another animal. And this is huge sacrifices. This is like you going out and buying a Lamborghini, and the first thing you do is you bring in the driveway and you slam it with a sledgehammer over and over and up to a million times. We're not talking about like a dog that you can find on the street. We're talking about raising an animal that costs a lot of money. And you need it to keep the crops growing. Sheep, shear them to make money. We're talking about cows that you need to plow the crops. And you're taking this thing that you've invested all your money in. And you need this thing more than anything to keep your crops and your life going. And God tells you to kill it. And you have to do that umpteen times all the time because you keep failing miserably. You want to talk about low self-esteem in education. God is constantly telling you, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong. You failed, you failed, you failed, you failed. That's not going to go over well in American education very well. Okay? And yet that's exactly what the law did. And God said, Amen. And you fail enough times, what is it that you eventually do when you're frustrated over and over again? My kids just fail one time at school and they immediately do this. Most of us come from a generation where we try over and over and over. What do you eventually do when you just fail and fail and fail? You stop trying, but that means eternal damnation. You don't want to be eternally damned, so what do you do? You go get help. I mean, if you're, I mean, right now it's kind of like, well, I'll take the C, so that means I don't have to go and try to ask help from a teacher that I'm scared to ask help from. But eternal damnation, you're going to ask for help. Unless you just don't care anymore. And so now you're crying out to God for help. And that's exactly where God wants you. That's the purpose of the law. To drive you into the arms of a God. And then eventually you begin to realize this isn't enough either. I mean, yeah, it's cool to rest in the arms of a God who loves you and take care of you, but at the same time, Shouldn't true rest in God be more than just sinning all the time and sacrifice? Yeah, it's awesome to be in God's rest, as chapter 3 and 4 said. But I also want to be in God's rest without being a scumbag all the time, too. And then you begin to look forward to someone who might actually be able to meet the requirements of God. And right at the point where you begin to figure that out, okay, you've got this law, it comes in your life in 1446. And you go all the way up to 1000 when David comes in the picture. 400 years, you're told by God, you fail, you're a scumbag, you'll never do it. That's going to get pretty hopeless and defeatful. And then eventually, some people get it. Boaz, Ruth, Rahab, David, they begin to realize that I need God, I need God, and they begin to cling to Him, and they cling to Him, and they cling to Him. But they begin to hope for a better day where they can cling to God and rest in Him and still not be a horrible sinner screwing up all the time. There's nothing worse than sitting in Dad's lap and still doing horrible sins. Yes, it's cool to be in the lap of Dad, but you don't want to be doing that right by Him all the time. And so right at that point... But then David kicks in, you are a king and a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. And bam, the prophets explode with messianic hope of a Savior who will come and actually meet the requirements of the law. And that's the purpose of the law. To drive me in the arms of a Savior who actually can do it.
So in that sense, is the law good? Yes. Is the law perfect? Yes. I would not have known sin without the law, Paul says. But I also would have not known my need for a Savior without the law, Paul says. But can the law save me? No. And now that Christ is here, do I need a road sign pointing me towards New York anymore if I'm in the middle of New York? No. So why would I keep going back to road signs when everybody's looking at me like, you're already there, dude. (laughs) And that's what he's saying about the law. The law was good. The law was perfect. The law was righteous because the law was meant to point you towards Christ. But now that you're right there smack dab in the middle of Christ and He's come, you don't need the road signs anymore. And Paul even goes so far as to say the law was a tutor until better things come. Well, once you get it, do you need the tutor anymore? And what would you much rather have? An external 316 laws on a piece of paper that tells you this is what you're supposed to do and you can't do it? Or would you rather have a Holy Spirit that lives inside of you and can speak to every single moment of your life and give you the power to fulfill it? Because the law gave me a lot of rules of what it meant to be righteous. But the law did not tell me how to function on Facebook. It didn't tell me how to function with the Internet. It didn't tell me how to function with this specific person in this specific area of my life who's coming to me at this very specific moment. It didn't tell me how to function on the road with a car and road rage. You don't get a whole lot of cutting off and road rage when you're horse and buggy, okay? Unless there's other cars. (laughs) And now I've got a Holy Spirit who can speak to me every single second and say, you say this to them, but you had me say this to that person over there yesterday. Yeah, because that was for them, but this is for them. The law can only tell you one thing. The law can tell me, convict me right then and bad. The only time the law can convict me in the First Testament is if I happen to be staring at the laws right then and there when I'm committing the sin. But now I've got a Holy Spirit who says, ah, it's not cool. And the law gave me no power for my life to change. But the Holy Spirit transforms me by the renewing of my mind. And so the question is, which one do you want? Now, do the Ten Commandments still stand? Yes, because the Holy Spirit tells me, don't murder that person and don't hate them. Not because a piece of paper told me. Do we still obey the Sabbath? Yes. But it's no longer one day anymore. Now it's every day. Now I can rest in Christ every day because the whole point of the Sabbath was if you live 20 miles away from the tabernacle, it's not realistic to go to the tabernacle every single day. That's why you had one day. But now I can come to Him every day. In fact, I'm required to come to Him every day. In fact, if I don't, then I'm probably going to suffer in my life with Christ and my sin nature and stuff. And so now every day becomes a Sabbath. And so everything just gets better. And so in some ways, I am still obeying the commandments of God because the Holy Spirit keeps speaking to me and guiding me. But now I do by surrendering and submitting to the Holy Spirit rather than going to this piece of paper of 316 rules and trying to say, check, check. I mean, we've got these things in our cabinets like things to do with your children. Have you prayed with your child today? Did you not criticize them? Now, those things are great. Don't get me wrong because I can need every reminder that I can get. But at the same time, that piece of paper is not going to make me really truly do it, and it's not going to give me the power to change. It's good because it's a great reminder. 
Because if I don't have it written all over my house, then I don't really have much of a hope. Because I can ignore the Holy Spirit just like I can ignore the piece of paper. So I'm going to do everything I can to keep reminding me, but that paper gives me no power. But it's when I look at the paper and I say, oh yeah, that's right, I need to do that. And then I say, oh Holy Spirit, please help me. Do it because I can't. That's where the real power and the change comes. Rather than just looking at the paper and say, yeah, that's right, and then you walk away. And that's why the law is good, and this is what it says. So let's go to Romans 7, verse 7 chapter 7, verse 1. Or do you not know, brothers and sisters, for I am speaking to those who know the law. The law is lord over a person as long as he lives. For a married woman is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. So then if she is joined to another man while her husband is alive, she will be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law. And if she is joined to another man, she is not an adulteress. So my brothers and sisters, you also died to the law through your body of Christ so that you could be joined to another, to the one who was raised from the dead to bear fruit to God. Why are we no longer the law? Because that old spouse is dead and we've been married to a new one. And that's why Christ can also be king and priest at the same time without violating the law because he's not violating the law. There's a new law now. And under the new law, he can be both. Because it's his law. Verse 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Absolutely not. So this is where Paul tries to say, we're not on the law anymore, but don't you dare go to the point and say that it's bad and sin either. Certainly I would not have known sin except through the law. For indeed I would not have known what it means to desire something belonging to someone else that the law had not said, do not covet. But sin seizing the opportunity through the commandment produced in me all kinds of wrong desires. For apart from the law, sin is dead. And I was once alive apart from the law, but with the commandment of the commandment of sin became alive, and I died. So I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life brought death. For sin seizing the opportunity through the commandment deceived me, and through it I died, so that within the law is holy and the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. The law just condemns you all the time. It will curse you and it will kill you and it will condemn you. Why would you want to go back to that? Now, is there a purpose for the law today? Yes. Because we're entering into a culture where people are beginning to lose what the idea of righteousness is. The other purpose of the law is until that Messiah and Savior can come, then the law governs our morality. Because if you do not have people who will love God and obey because, well, sorry, they do not obey because they love God, because they do not know God, then how do you keep people morally obedient if they're not doing out of love? Fear of consequences. My uncle always said, the locks on your doors only keep honest people honest. If somebody really wants in, they'll get in. I've heard people say, the only reason I haven't killed this person is because I know I'll get caught and I don't want to go to jail. And they meant it. I had a friend growing up who always weighed. I'm going to get beaten for this if I do it. Is it worth it? Yes. If you do not fear the punishment, there's nothing that keeps us from disobeying. So why is the law still good today? Because it keeps a lot of immoral people in check who are not trying to be obedient because they love God. Two, it will help them understand what righteousness is. Now, somebody mentioned it, I think it was you guys, mentioned Ray Comfort. Ray Comfort does a really good job of going out in the streets 
and presenting the law to them and using the law to get them to understand that they really truly are sins and then he turns around and gives them the gospel presentation. What a perfect example of what the law is meant to do. He doesn't say, oh, you're a sinner, look, da-da-da, and, oh, there you go, keep trying harder. He uses the law to point out their sin and get them to admit with their own mouth that, yes, they have sin, and then he introduces them to Jesus Christ. And that's what Paul says, without the law, I would have never known sin, and the law made me even more of a sin, and now I have a Savior. So it goes into chapter 8, and 7 says, who will save me, the wretched man that I am? And chapter 8, the Holy Spirit. Then we get to chapter 8, verse 4, 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the life-giving Spirit in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. You are no longer condemned because you no longer have to obey a law anymore in order to receive salvation. Now, let me rephrase that. The law never got you salvation, but that's what we want to turn it into sometimes. 4, verse 3, God achieved what the law could not do. Now there you go. Is the law good and holy? Yes. But don't you dare make it do what God has intended to do. When you put yourself under the law and say, only under the law can I please God, then you are now making the law your God. Because you're obeying it. You're trying to please it. You're trying to meet its requirements. And you're trying to make it save you when it cannot do that because a law is just a law. The creation is good because God created it. But don't you dare make the creation your idol and then your savior. The law is good because the law gave it, but don't you dare make it your idol and your savior. Yes. The second one is to reveal that we are a sinner. If I didn't clarify that, I'm sorry. We are a sinner. So number one is to tell us what righteousness looks like. Number two is to show us that we are a sinner because I failed to meet that requirement of righteousness. Number three then is to drive us into the arms of God slash to reveal our need for a Savior. I'm sorry if I didn't make that clear. And then four was because God achieved what the law did not. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, if you want to, I didn't have anything really after after three, but that would be like that. Well, four was the govern there. If I did, I'm sorry. I don't know. You haven't figured out. I don't always speak correctly all the time. So, so one is to show you righteousness. Two is to reveal your, that you're a sinner. Three, your need for a savior. Four would kind of be technically that to govern your sin until something better can come along. Because the only thing that's going to keep me obedient is the fear of consequences. Then I would say the conclusion and the therefore is what your number four is. That Christ provides a better. If that makes sense. And then listen, that like one, two, three, and four are not like... There's no scriptural verse that says that. So, <laughs> And I know you know that, but... So, here's the important part. Now, this totally tells you what the law, what we, what our place of the law is today. For God achieved what the law could not do because it was weakened through the flesh. The law, in order to be, make us perfect, is completely dependent upon our flesh perfectly obeying. 
But if our flesh cannot perfectly obey, then the law cannot perfect us. So why was the law weak and useless? Because it's completely dependent upon our flesh. And our flesh is weak and useless. That's why the law is weak and useless. Because if we can't perfectly obey the law, then the law will always fail and condemn us. So the weakness in the law is us. So the law points out our weakness so that we'll grab something far superior, and that's the Son of God. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and concerning sin, He condemns sin in the flesh. So He then became our curse, our death for us because we're supposed to die under the law because it's all the law does is bring death. But Christ became our death on our behalf. He condemns sin in the flesh so that the righteous requirements of the law may be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. That's the key. So, that when I place my faith in Jesus Christ, I meet the requirements of the law. Because Abraham believed and he was declared to be righteous by faith. The righteous will live by faith. Habakkuk, Galatians, Hebrews, Romans, they all four say that statement. So when I have faith in God, then faith is the only thing that makes me righteous. So God declares me to be righteous. Then Christ comes and lives inside of me. Therefore, when God looks at me, He sees the righteousness of Christ, which means I meet the requirements of the law because Christ's in me. But then where I am justified, I am declared to be right before God because Christ is in me and fulfills all those requirements. Then the Holy Spirit enters me and begins to transform me and renews me, and He begins to make my life meet the reality of what God has declared me to be. And then, as I obey and submit to the Holy Spirit, then I sin a little bit less today than I did yesterday, or maybe this month than last month, or maybe this year than last year. I repent a little bit more quickly this time than last time. And then eventually I become more and more, in my actions, the reality of what God has declared me through Christ who is in me, until eventually Christ comes back and crucifies the flesh of me all the way and resurrects me. And then I meet the requirements of God, not because I obeyed the law, but because I surrendered and allowed the Holy Spirit to take over and He meets the requirements. And then He begins to establish new habits and new patterns in my life that that I then just begin to follow Because I'm not making the new habits, He is. And then I just fall into them. And I can actually get into the biology and the mental thing that there's actually chemicals in your brain that match up with the spiritual reality of being transformed by the renewing of your mind. And it's really cool that God has actually created a spiritual truth and a physical truth, and both of them work together to make you a new creature in Christ. And that's how I meet the requirements of the law. And that's how I obey the commandments. And so every moment that I fail, I say, God, help me. And I say, I can't do it. In fact, there's a part of me who doesn't want to obey you, but there's a big part of me who does. So I want you to take care and you make me love my wife better. You make me more patient with my children. I can't do it. Our problem is when we say, oh God, I'm so sorry, I'll try better next time. You're going back to the law. That's what he says in Galatians. If you were saved according to faith in the Spirit, then why do you keep going back to the law to become more righteous? 
We need to just keep surrendering to the Holy Spirit. And the more we surrender to the Holy Spirit, then the more He takes over and the more He begins to form new habits that we then fall into. And then eventually our lives begin to match the reality of what we've been declared to be, which means we meet the requirements of the law through Christ who's making me into a new creature. Not because I'm looking at this piece of paper saying, check, 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 but because I've set that aside and I'm now praying. And I'm listening for the voice of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit guides me. And the next thing I know, I mean the requirements of the law without ever knowing the piece of paper. Now, that means I have to train myself to recognize the voice of the Holy Spirit. Because there's the voice of the Holy Spirit, there's the voice of the demons, there's the voice of your flesh, and there's the voice of the world. Now, how do I begin to train myself? Well, there's many different ways, but one of the ways you can train yourself is going back to the law. And I go to the law and I begin to ask the Holy Spirit as I'm reading, because it's easy to be in the Holy Spirit when you're sitting in your private of your room without distractions reading the Bible. And I begin to read the law. And I say, okay, no, God, you don't ask me to require, you don't condemn me because I'm wearing 50% cotton, 50% polyester anymore. But what were you trying to say to Israel by saying one kind of fabric only? Well, that was part of mixing things that do not go together. You got one fabric and another fabric. You got the Canaanites and you got the Jews, and you start mixing them together, and that doesn't do a good thing. And so now you start saying, what am I not supposed to mix myself with? And what are those things in my culture today that are not pleasing the Holy Spirit? Okay, no, I don't have my neighbor's donkey coming into my backyard and falling in a hole and breaking its leg anymore. And therefore the law says I need to pay for the life of the donkey and pay for all the crops or all the work that he's going to miss for however many weeks that it takes that donkey's leg to be healed. But what was the spirit of the law there? It meant that if something I did caused my neighbor to be hurt or out of work or whatever, then I'd do everything in my power to show him love and take responsibility and help him keep his life going. So if my neighbor brings his work truck into my driveway and his drive, there's a nail in my driveway that pops his tire, then it means maybe I pay for his tire and I get it repaired and I do everything I can to help him get back on track so he can keep making a living and pay for his child because that's what love means. And yes, it's going to cost me, but that's the cross. And maybe he'll come and know Christ because of my sacrifice. And so then I begin to look at those things. And then when I hear voices in my head saying things like that, I say, wow, that matches up to the spirit of law back there. Even though I don't have the same Jewish custom as that Ten Commandments had or whatever, it's still the same principle applies today, and I begin to recognize that, and now I can begin to hear the Holy Spirit. There's other ways to train yourself to hear the Spirit, but that's one of them. And then the other way is like sometimes when it goes, if it meets the Bible and it's something that you would never do, it's probably the Holy Spirit. I'm an introvert. There's no way I'm walking across the room at McDonald's and talking to somebody I don't know. There's no way I'm doing that. And so when I hear a voice in my head say, go over there and talk to them, I know that's not me. (laughs) And that's one way that you can begin to train yourself to the Holy Spirit. If it agrees with the Word of God and yet is contrary to what you would selfishly do, it might be the Holy Spirit. So there's all these ways that you begin to train yourself. So in the way, therefore, the law is good because it can help me point out other people's sin in their life and point them to Christ. But the law is also good because it helps me train myself to recognize the voice of the Holy Spirit. 
if I do not get caught up in the cultural legalism of the law, but I begin to help try to see the heart of God in the law. The Jews got caught up in the legalism of the law and they missed God when He showed up in their face. Don't do the same thing. Find the spirit of the law that God was commanding and get rid of the cultural stuff. And then when the Holy Spirit stands in front of your face and says, go over there, you won't miss Him like the Jews did. Because they made the law their Savior rather than God. Which means they really made their flesh the Savior. Does that make sense? The law is good. So, did Christ come to abolish the law? No. Because if He abolished the law, then no one would have met the requirements and no one could have died for your sins taking the curse upon themselves. But now that Christ has fulfilled the law, then what do we do with it? We set it aside because we no longer need signs pointing us towards Christ because Christ is here. So in Christ's lifetime, there was no sacrifice yet. So he says, I haven't come to do away with the law. I've come to fulfill it. Now the author of Hebrews, who's after Christ, says Christ has set the law aside because he's fulfilled it. And now when I submit to this new order and this new law and this new covenant, then the power of a priest who is able to sympathize with me, he begins to transform me and I begin to meet the requirements of the law. Not because I made the law my focus, but because I've made Christ my focus. And so now, here's the thing. Christianity becomes a whole lot harder than it was for any Jew. Because if the Christianity and the Mosaic Covenant, is, is, sorry, if the covenant of Christ is superior to the Mosaic Covenant, then no longer is it about murder, it's about anger. No longer is it about adultery, it's about lust. No longer is it about keeping the corners of my fields unharvested for the poor. Now it's sell everything if necessary. Not that you have to, but if the Holy Spirit says do it, then you do it. Now it's not just about meeting 316 commandments. Now it's meeting the thousands of commandments that the Holy Spirit is speaking to me every single moment of my life. Now it's not just an animal sacrifice. Now it's not defiling the blood of Jesus Christ through my life. Now it's not just keeping a 150-foot tabernacle holy. Now it's about keeping my entire life holy because Christ is in me. And so here's the thing. You cannot do that. It is completely impossible without submitting to the Holy Spirit. And so now it's gotten a whole lot harder. If you think I'm throwing the law out, I've actually introduced a much more difficult order and law. But God be praised, we have the Holy Spirit inside of us. And we have one who was tempted along all points, yet without sin. He's blazed the trail into heaven, entered into the heavenly sanctuary where we cannot, and then come back and indwelled us and says, I will walk with you, I will empower you, I will do it, I will transform you, and I will carry you when you surrender all the way into there. And the law was just 316 laws. 613, sorry. Does that kind of make sense? And that's a broad stroke. (laughs) Because... Go home and read Galatians 3 
if you want to get even more. A lot of it's kind of what I've already said, but there's some more details there. And so, I'm not saying anti the commandments of God. I'm setting the commandments of God aside that pointed towards the Savior because now the Savior is here and just ratcheted everything up even more. And this is why the author can come along and say, if the penalty for violating the law was death, then how much more will it be with Christ? If the rest with the Moses was in the land, then how much will it be with Christ? If the priest could atone for your sins and cover them, then how much will it be with Christ who actually pays for your sins? Everything just gets ratcheted up. It's not a doing away with the commandments and the law of God so I can do what I want. Should I sin all the more, Christ says? No. It's a setting aside the road sign because the true living city of God is now here. The law pointed me towards the city of God and now we have arrived. And now we're looking forward to an even greater city of God when everything will literally, what is spiritual in me now, will literally physically happen in the second coming of Jesus Christ. Because I've arrived into the city of God spiritually through Christ in me. And one day when Christ physically comes back, I will arrive into the city of God physically as well. And what I've been declared to be, I will physically and literally be as well. And that's our hope. And therefore, if God honored and kept His promise the first time, I can trust that He'll honor and keep His promise the second time. And this is what the author is saying. Why would you want to go back to that? Now, the other way that I begin to see Christ better is because now I go back to the tabernacle and I ask myself, how did the tabernacle point to Jesus? How did the pillar of fire point to Jesus? How did the Exodus point to Jesus? And that helps me better understand Jesus too because that was the physical narrative that helps us understand the theological truth of what Jesus is today in the New Testament. And a lot of us, sometimes we feel like, okay, I've got to hear that theology all over again because I kind of missed some points here and there. And that's why the First Testament and the New Second Testament so perfectly fit together because I have my physical narrative illustrating all the theological complicated arguments that are being made in the First Testament. Narrative will only help me understand God so much. Therefore, I need the theology of the New Testament to help me understand what God was doing. But at the same time, sometimes it's good to have a little narrative parable to help me understand the theological principle. And so the First Testament is one of my favorite things to read and study. Because the more and more I understand the First Testament, when I get to the Second Testament, I feel like, oh my gosh, that makes so much sense now. Really, I remember plowing through these books and like, I don't understand, I don't understand. And then I got into the narrative and I understood what was going on as well. I'm understanding better every year what's going on. And the more I understand, I get to Peter, I'm like, oh my gosh, that makes sense. And now hopefully some of you have said to me, like, the Hebrews makes me want to go back to the First Testament. And that's the beauty of how I can say the First Testament is set aside because the Second is here, but the First is still good and amazing and awesome because it helps me better understand the Second. And without the One, I have no the Other. And it's way more than that, too, 
Because God is also building something, and that's another story. It's not just he's painting pictures. He's also literally building a thing that cannot exist without all the pieces of the puzzle, but that's a whole other lesson. And this is the law. Does that help? Does it make sense? And so you don't feel guilty of not meeting this Levitical law. You feel guilty because you hurt your relationship with Christ. And now I no longer try to obey to earn my God's favor. Favor. I now obey because I just want to make Him proud. And this is what He meant by faith like a child. When your kids were young, all they could think about is you. They wanted to please you. They wanted to make you happy. They drew pictures. And they not, made nothing better than the, for them to put them on the refrigerator. And my girls paint pictures and they tape them to the front door so I see them the minute I come in the house. And then they get older and they just don't care anymore. And that's what it is. Faith like a child means that the only thing that's in my world is mom and dad. And the only thing I want to do is please them and make them happy. Then you get the teenager, and they're just doing it because they don't want to be punished. Now, hopefully, that's not always true. But that's there. And then this is what Jesus is saying. You no longer obey because these rules said to, and you trying to earn the favor of God or escape some kind of punishment. That's behaviorism. And if you want that, go join any religion. But now you obey God because Christ has paid a horrible price to save you. And you don't have to do anything except just have faith in Him. And then He comes and indwells in you and begins to build a relationship in you. And no matter how many times you're unfaithful to Him, He is still faithful to you. And no matter how many times you divorce Him, He never divorces you. And He keeps working in you, keeps loving you. And you're so overwhelmed by a God who loves you like that, a God who is faithful to you like that, a God who is in your life like that, a Father who never abandons you and loves you like that, that you can't help but want to please Him and make Him happy. And you can't help but want to know Him better. And now what hurts you more than anything is not the spanking you got when you disobeyed, but the look on His face when you disobeyed. And that's what drives you. And that's why you obey. Not because the law told you to, but because the Holy Spirit and Jesus who were in you You just want to know them more. And now, the more you're in the Word and the more you're praying, you don't try to make yourself more godly because you're trying to do this. Now you make yourself more godly because you spend more time with God. And the more time you spend with God, the better He looks to you. And the more you like Him and the more you desire Him, And then sin just doesn't seem to be as attractive anymore. And that's the key. Look, I did not know my wife as well when I got married as I do today. And the more time I spend with her, the more time I want to spend with her. 
And then not always. Sometimes we feel like we just want to run out of the house. But that's my sin. And that's her sin. But when we're both submitting to the Holy Spirit and we're both seeking the will of God, then the more we're with each other, the more we want to spend time with her. The more I know her, the more I want to get to know her. And now I don't come home because I'm afraid that she's just going to yell and scream at me because I stayed out all night without telling her. Now I come home because I can't think of anything more but to see the joy and the look on her face when she sees me. When the girls run to me and they're excited to see me. I know that won't last forever. But <laughs> that's why I come home because I want to spend more time. i got a next-door neighbor who sits in his car as long as he possibly can before he walks in the house. And sometimes at 3 o'clock in the morning, they're yelling and screaming at each other. And my heart breaks for them. Rather than a person who comes home and can't wait to get in that front door. And, and that's really the relationship we're supposed to have. And if, it, and if that's what you can have with a sinner, then imagine what you can have with a perfect, almighty God. Does that make sense? That's the gospel in a nutshell. And yeah, that's a big nutshell, but the gospel's big. And questions? Hey, when you go home, put some praise music in and praise Him, because that's the whole point. Okay, you need an outlet for that. Lord, I thank You so much for who You are. I thank You for Your beauty, Your love, Your compassion, Your power, the amazingness of who You are in Your plan. And as much as this makes us say, God be praised and wows us, this is still just scratching the surface of your gospel and who you are and what you've accomplished. Lord, give us the desire to know you more because of who you are. Because if all you were was king, we would fear you. But you're our priest, which means we can come and know you to receive compassion. But then we also then can appreciate you even more as our king because you're a sovereign God who commands the universe and can handle all things. And you really, truly can put at bay the world and transform us into this new creature. And we thank you for that. And I pray that you would harvest a deep love and desire in us that in the same way as if somebody paid all of our debts and gave us a million dollars, we couldn't help to want to always please them. How much more should that love be a Savior who died on the cross for us to give us life and indwelt us? Grow that love in us. Grow that desire in us. And remove the fear of consequences and punishment and condemnation. Humble us. And help us realize what we truly are without you so that we can truly know what we can be when we surrender to you. And let us in our lives tell the truth to others about who you are. In Jesus' name, amen.